Hey, hey, y'all. It's me, Robin. And just real quick before we get to today's episode, if you are loving listening to the podcast, or maybe you don't know because you've just pressed play for the first time ever, but if you like to listen to things in your earbuds, you are going to be so happy to know that Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors is now released as an audiobook. You can get it in Audible or wherever else you get your audiobooks. And of course, you can still get it in print and ebook. If you go to robingobel.com slash book, it's going to give you all the options, including that you could order a signed copy from my local bookstore. Alrighty, y'all. Here's that podcast episode you're waiting for. Hey, y'all. If you've been listening to the podcast in July, you know that I made, I made a super last minute decision to pause recording new podcast episodes just for the month. I had a moment when I realized I really needed to pause and rest, especially after the in-depth attachment series from back in June and then opening up the club to new members. I reached out to a few podcasts where I'd been a guest and asked if I could publish the interview I did on their podcast on my podcast. Sue and Ann over at Therapist Uncensored said yes. And today I'm rebroadcasting an episode we recorded earlier this year and first aired on Therapist Uncensored. If you aren't already listening to Therapist Uncensored, you want to be. It is a top-rated therapy, mental health, relational neuroscience podcast with over 2 million downloads. They've interviewed amazing guests such as Dan Siegel, Tina Payne Bryson, Sue Cozzolino, Stephen Porges, Bonnie Badenoch, who you also heard on this podcast. Leaders not necessarily in the parenting world, but definitely in the relational neuroscience world. When this episode is over, go check out Therapist Uncensored and their amazing podcast. I'm Robin Goebel, and you're listening to the Parenting After Trauma podcast, where I take the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and translate that for parents of kids who've experienced trauma. I'm a psychotherapist with over 15 years of experience working with kids who have experienced trauma and their families. I'm also a self-diagnosed brain geek and relationship freak. I study the brain kind of obsessively and even taught the science of interpersonal neurobiology in a certificate program. I started this podcast at a whim with the intention to get you free, accessible support as fast as possible. So the podcast isn't fancy and I do very little editing. Sometimes you'll hear a cockadoodle do in the background. If you love this episode, add Parenting After Trauma to your favorite podcast player and share with your friends and colleagues. You are definitely going to want to head over to my website and get the free ebook I'd created all about the basics of attachment. I took everything from the six part series and had it professionally laid out into a free ebook. Watching the series go from words into what feels like a work of art has been surprisingly lovely. I hope you love it. RobinGobel.com slash ebook. And of course, while you're on my website, you're definitely going to want to check out the club, a virtual community of connection, co-regulation, and of course, a little education for parents of kids impacted by trauma. Sue and I talk about the club in this episode, which really makes me smile because the club was in its infancy when we recorded. I truly cannot even believe what the club has become in just a short period of time. And holy moly, we would love to have you. The club opens for new members approximately 
every three months, and we'll be opening our doors again this fall. If you head over to robingobel.com slash the club, you'll be able to add yourself to the waiting list. Alrighty. I hope you enjoy this flip-flopped podcast where I'm interviewed by friend and colleague, Sue Marriott from Therapist Uncensored. Here we go. Hey, Robin Gobel. Welcome back. We're so excited to have you back on the show. Of course. Super excited to be invited and just to spend the morning with you again. This is awesome. So for those of you who don't know, we had the pleasure of interviewing Robin back on episode 53. And we are going to follow up and, you know, we don't always have guests on twice because there's so many cool things to put on, but Robin has been up to a lot of things and it's been really working hard on developing application of these ideas to really help people. So it's not just in your head and it's not just theoretical. It's our privilege to have you come and share your current thinking and anything that you've learned and things like that. So let me just start like right at the heart of it. It's like, what are you most excited about right now in this work? I'm most excited about busting through the way we believe we're supposed to be offering mental health care to people and particularly to families. So that's, that's exciting already, <laughs> which is, I know like this huge concept, but it really, I think underlies in a way everything that I'm trying to do right now and seeing the limits of the way that we believe in the U.S. specifically and in our Western culture, like how we believe mental health care is supposed to be offered. What do you mean by that? Like, what's the old model that you're busting out of? Like, what are some of the limitations? Yeah. So my perspective on this, I'm not saying this is true for all people, but my perspective has been like one-on-one 50 minute therapy hour. And even if we go up, like increase the you know frequency of that, there's still a big resemblance to this, you know, one-on-one 50 minute therapy hour that's held inside the medical model, meaning there's this place we start from with conceptualizing through a kind of pathology and then trying to fix what's wrong. And there's so many things about that idea as I've, you know, grown as a clinician and grown in my own healing work for myself and seeing what truly helps other people that just is like, who told us to do it this way? And why are we still doing it this way? And I mean, there's a, we could have a big conversation about who told us to do it that way and then why we're still doing it. But I think moving, you know, so I left Austin, Texas, this therapy rich environment, It's been about 18 months, I guess, since we came to outside Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I lived my entire adult life in Austin, which means my entire professional life was in Austin in this extremely therapy-rich environment, right? Like Mm -hmm. we had more therapists per human in Austin, like any city (laughs) in the whole world, it seems Uh like, right? Everybody's in therapy. Everybody goes to therapy. And all the therapists are like super excited and like learning stuff and yeah. Yeah. It was such a, uh, yeah. And there were so many opportunities to be a great therapist and connect with other great therapists. And I also think there was a lot of opportunities to create accessible mental health services. It certainly wasn't perfect. You know, there's a lot of things could always have been improved, but there was an accessibility to mental health care in Austin that I probably understood cognitively was true, that that didn't exist everywhere. But then I left and was really able to like hold how true 
And, and even in Austin, you know, we lived outside Austin, we lived rurally. And so I lived in a real rural community that didn't have as many resources and traveling into the city to get your mental health needs. That's mm. not an option for everybody for a barrier. whole mm. host of reasons. Where did you land? So now I'm outside Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a much smaller city than Austin, a much less progressive city than Austin. And I think that just highlighted this truth that really good quality mental health services are just not accessible. And, you know, my area of expertise has always been working with kids with complex trauma and their families. So most of these kids have been adopted, had experienced significant trauma, and they're in adoptive families. So it's really, really pretty narrow niche. And even more true for this one specific population, that there's not even close to the resources needed for these families. They actually literally don't even exist, let alone in enough quantity to Mm -hmm. meet the needs of these really struggling families. Then we went to 100% telehealth back in March, right? The whole world in a way. Mm-hmm. Now we're trying to offer services in this really like for some most of us unique format. Offering telehealth services to children has some fascinating <laughs> challenges that come up. So when I moved, I had decided to take a break from offering direct clinical services. So I've been really focused on teaching and training and consulting and supporting the other therapists. So when we shifted into this crisis, the pandemic, I sat on a little bit on the outside of it as I was supporting the therapist, supporting these people who are transitioning to a new model of care in their own crisis themselves and trying to support families who lived in chronic, chronic crisis with kids with pretty significant behavioral issues, dysregulation, mental health you know, challenges. So the, all these things like kind of a, kept putting themselves in this little basket of me realizing like there has to be a better way. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not an ideal, perfect way, there's still got to be a way that we can support and be with people in an accessible way, accessibility from like format accessibility in like one-to-one versus one-to-a-lot, financial accessibility, time of day accessibility. I mean, there's just so many things, right? Oh, man, you're, you're singing our song. <laughs> yeah, and, and in a way, like all of us are also feeling so helpless, right? Like, how can I? That's true. Right. Another part of this piece is that in the last year and a half, when I haven't been actively seeing clients, I decided it would be a great time to write a book. And it's mostly a memoir about my own kind of healing journey. Mm. I didn't expect these two topics to collide, but ultimately they did as I started to get really curious, really, I just started asking myself this question, like, what is my book even about? Like, I'm very confused. I'm writing this book. I have no idea what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to succinctly state, like, what is this book about? And what was helpful for me in my own journey that I think is unique and that I don't think everybody is receiving because it's not accessible. And ultimately, I came up with what feels, you know, this is ever evolving, these three really big pieces. And then therefore, I've tried to see, can I recreate this on a bigger scheme where more people are receiving it? That's such an exciting thing to kind of be trying to tell a story and then have to step back. It's like, what is the real story? Anna and I are doing something similar with we're writing 
And we keep doing the same thing. It's yes. like, we think we're going in, but it, we keep coming, coming back. It's like, what are we actually saying? What, yeah. what matters? What right. works? Right. Still it down. So I'm so excited. To, what did you get? What were your three things? So my, again, these are ever evolving. And so in a yeah, year, yeah. I might be like, Ooh, that was yeah. all right. We, but, won't, we won't pen you down. <laughs> right now. You know, I see these three major things again, emerged in my own journey as I reflected on it. But then I'm like, I've supported hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, these are the common themes here. So one is for me, truly understanding what I call like the relational neurobiology of just being human. And, you know, there's such this emphasis, I feel like on like trauma informed and the impact of trauma, which is fantastic and has shifted so many things and paradigms. And yet- This is human informed. Not, not yeah. just trauma informed. <laughs> yes, although I've gotten away from saying that because I got a little bit of pushback that it felt a little bit too watered down. It felt a little oh. bit too. Actually, what happened, and this is hard to admit out loud, but I was in a forum where somebody compared it to it feeling a little bit like the All Lives Matter movement. This was horrifying to me, right? Of course. Like, I was totally. like, oh. <gasps> spent a lot of time like reflecting on that like oh my yeah. gosh how did that happen yeah. and I've hopefully now taken all of it off my website because I'm like and and I asked I was real vulnerable and asked like a big group of trusted colleagues and some of them were gutsy enough to say like you know the first time I, I heard you talk about that I, I thought the same thing oh, and wow. because I know your heart and I know where you're coming from I knew that's not what you meant but I had that pang myself too, that it felt a little bit too much like all lives matter. And so I've been trying to process that and figure out like, okay, so how do I express? And also shout out to those people who are brave enough to let us know, oh my gosh, I know. when we're, you know, stumbling along, toddling along yeah. and not or unconsciously perpetuating things and how hard it is, but how brave it is that you really yeah. took that in and examined Oh, yeah. I mean, it just was such the antithesis of what I was attempting to communicate, but enough people were saying that that was their first reaction that I was like, okay, well, obviously it needs to kind of reframe this. And, and as I dove deeper into that, what I was feeling was what I see out of the trauma-informed care movement with kids, especially in an educational system and a parenting system, is that there ultimately comes a place where it becomes just another behavior management technique mm -hmm. that we learn about trauma. We learn about how trauma impacts behaviors. And so then we do X and Y will change. And so that still feels like it doesn't sit on what is my truth, which is all of us, like the neurobiology of being human is that, you know, both connections are biological imperative that we're complex systems, always attempting to find coherence and integration and until I feel like we can really sit in that truth, then we are at risk of this trauma-informed lens of ultimately becoming another kind of behavior management technique. Like we're going to use this new way to still get the behavior. That's what I'm looking for. As opposed to the trust that it's like humans are designed to be their best selves are designed to be in relationship, they're designed to be in ways that are inviting and giving connection. So if they're not behaving in that way, let's get super curious about why. Why? 
I'm interrupting the show real quick because if you happen to be a new listener, you might find yourself being a little overwhelmed by all this information. That makes total sense. I mean, there's like 150 episodes plus all the free resources that are available over my website. It's just a lot. So many folks have asked me, where do I start? So I created a separate podcast stream called Start here. What I did is I took the 10 episodes that I want you to listen to first, and then I want you to listen to in this specific order. And I put them into a separate podcast stream so that you don't have to search for them. You can just press play and they'll play one after the other after the other. If you go to robingoblecom slash start here, you'll be able to get an invitation to subscribe. And then you'll be able to listen right in the same podcast app you're using right now. RobinGobel.com slash start here. I'm imagining a trauma therapist hearing you. So when you say that trauma-informed therapy ends up unintentionally, I think, yeah. becoming a behavioral, like looking at the behavioral and managing that, can you say just a little bit more so people understand what you mean? Yeah, so I think about... And this is certainly not true across the board. You and I both know amazing, wonderful people who call themselves trauma-informed. Sure. This wouldn't be true about them, but that when we're thinking about human behavior and then thinking about how trauma has impacted that behavior, we still are really focused on the behavior, still really focused on what we can see from that behavior. Yeah. And are you thinking of kids in particular or everybody? I'm thinking of everybody. Yeah. And so to take it back to, okay, what did I discover that was in the story of my book that I was like, how can I get this out to the whole world? That's a big piece of it is being in therapy, having yep. a therapist who believed this, who yeah. believed 100% in connection being a biological imperative and mm-hmm. all behavior makes sense. One of the things I learned so much from Bonnie Badenoch, right, is no behavior is maladaptive. It all makes sense. It doesn't mean it's all good or helpful or useful or not something we really need to change mm-hmm. <laughs> for a mm-hmm. whole host of reasons. Yeah. It all makes sense, uh-huh. which is just that shifts for me, my way of being, uh-huh. right? That shifts as the therapist, my nervous system, my openness, yeah. my welcoming, And being on the couch myself, knowing that my therapist was staunchly committed to this truth, you know, being so curious about why the symptom exists and being so confident that exists for a really good reason. Again, that doesn't mean we don't want to necessarily change it. It's a subtle difference, but it's really like an energetic change. Totally. It's the the shame factor is massively different. Yes. And really to be able to sit in that place as the therapist, to really believe these things, for me, at least there came a place where I had to understand the neurobiology or I wasn't going to believe it. Like I had to understand kind of like the left brain facts about like the neurobiology being human and then how adverse experiences, toxic stress, trauma impact that. That for me was like the one pillar, like learning the facts. If you can get that lens on almost anything, the compassion opens up and your your interest in it because you can still be very curious about it, but you're coming at it from a really different perspective. I think by getting this feedback, both from parents and educators, so a lot of, yeah. I had a lot of experience too, like helping educators yeah. really implement a trauma-informed model, is that the challenging behavior was about the trauma. 
you know, I'd get these questions from parents and educators and they'd say like, I totally believe this. I totally believe in this trauma-informed model, but then they'd have a but, and it would usually sound like one of two things, but what about when it's not working or But how do we know if this given behavior is about trauma or not? So there was the space of Mm -hmm. believing that if a behavior that was undesirable, how do we distinguish if this is a trauma behavior or not a trauma behavior? Implicit in that question is because then we're going to handle them differently. Yeah. And my belief is that no, like, no, 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 that like, that's the wrong question. If it's trauma related, I can be more empathetic or I can. If it's not trauma related, then I don't. It's a behavioral issue. Yes, it's just a behavior issue, which means I'm going to take a behavior approach, which almost always turns into a punitive approach. As hard as we try not to, you know, it almost always turns into a punitive approach, this belief, there's still like almost this underlying belief that like, if I don't figure out the best consequence or the best behavior, they're never going to act right. And so just really challenging that idea. Like it doesn't matter. It does matter. I mean, I don't want to minimize the impact of trauma and people who are experiencing really devastating impacts on their lives because of the impact of trauma. And so the impact of trauma certainly does matter, but matters because of how the trauma is impacting their neurobiology of just being a human. Yeah. It's at a treatment approach for an end versus just this more receptive discovering who this person is. Does that fit? Yeah. So even the question of what do we do if it doesn't work begs the question of like, but what does that mean? What does working mean? My, my agenda doesn't work. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time thinking about, because I would go to these conference, and again, those are almost always the two questions I would hear after speaking. Yep. Mm-hmm. I totally get it. I love this approach. I want to be trauma-informed, but what? You know, and then yep. those two questions. And so I really, you know, I think that's where I started to come, you know, like we need to move past being trauma-informed and really lay trauma-informed on what we understand about what it means to be human and really embody that, like not just hold it in our left brain, but like really embody what that means. Because I believe that shifts how we show up then as the helpers. So again, if I kind of then go back to, you know, these couple pillars that I've I've come up with in an attempt to create more accessibility for families who need support. One is this, like one's this like educational kind of left brained that goes a little bit beyond just understanding the impact of trauma. In fact, somebody, I just had a conversation this morning with someone It's like, I know all the stuff in my head, but I can't do it. I'm still failing as a parent. I'm a failure. Right. So for me, I started thinking about Well, from my own healing experience, there was two really important things. And at first I thought this can't be recreated, but I started to think, yes, it can. And one was, I knew that my therapist believed these things. Like I knew she looked at me with that lens. I knew what I saw in her eyes. I knew this new version of myself, new meaning I'd never seen it before. Not new meaning it it never existed before. It had always been me but nobody had ever really reflected oh, I t- truth to I me. recognized it so that you could see it in yourself. Yes. Yes. And the safety of knowing, because she was really explicit about it, the safety of knowing, like I could never do anything bad enough or tell her anything bad about it myself that would make her change that thought. 
never. And I believed her, her commitment to it was so clear. Like I just totally believed her. And then I was working as a therapist. So the third piece then for me was that I was a practicing therapist and I was forced then 30 hours a week to show up every day and stay anchored in that truth. And the truth being connections is a biological imperative. We're always moving towards integration. There's nothing wrong with you. Yes. Yeah, there's there's nothing nothing wrong wrong with you. you. These parts of self that have emerged and sure may have some behaviors that are troubling, you know, yeah, yeah. like they all exist for a reason. They're all, you know, they're protective. And as therapists, sometimes we're confronted with people who have very challenging behaviors Mm -hmm. and they tell us about them from the real world, but sometimes we also see them in our office. Right. And so the practice of staying in that belief, almost like this meditative practice of constantly coming back to, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. How can I be curious? How can I be curious? How can I welcome this part of you? How can I create safety? Right. The fact that I was being forced to give and receive that forced because it's my job. These three pieces together, I started to think like, oh, no, no, no. This doesn't have to exist only in the therapy room. This does not have to exist only in the therapy. What if I created a space while I'm really passionate and think the whole world needs to know these things? Currently, my primary area of focus is parents of kids with complex trauma. Mm -hmm. And so could we create the space virtually became Mm -hmm. the next curiosity Mm -hmm. because that's what we're doing right now is being virtual. But I was getting emails from people. I was getting social media responses from people. Literally, somebody told me, somebody I've never met in my entire life told me that their family thinks about me like as part of their family, you know, and they're like, so what what would Robin do? You know, and I was like, okay, so somehow even virtually with somebody I've never even had a one-on-one relationship Mm, with. Now you're an internal person. Yes. 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 Oh my gosh. That is so exciting. And you can scale that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I can't do that myself either. Like I'm just one person. So my grand experiment has to create like this virtual community for parents of kids with trauma. And I created like a, it's called the club and I created a club manifesto. It reads like regulated, connected kids who feel safe, you know, are behaving in like developmentally appropriate ways, regulated, connected kids who feel safe. And then I went and regulated, connected parents who are feeling safe are parenting the way that they want to, a way that matches their values and their ideals. We're all overflowing with infinite worth. We're all always doing the very best we can in every unfolding moment. You put a trick in there, which was regulated and connected. That's how you can't be dismissed or pushed away because now the message is, how do you regulate and connect? How do you regulate and connect? How do you feel safe? Right. So regulation, connection, felt safety. If we can see the behavior, but look underneath behavior and ask yes. ourselves, okay, what's the regulation? Where's the, you know, the connection? Is this person feeling safe? Yeah. You know, and really, truly understanding what, what felt safety is, you know, and that, as parents, it's true about us too. Totally. I'm parenting. I'm in relationship with my kid, my husband, my parents in the way that matches my values and my ideals when I'm those things, when I'm feeling regulated, you know, when I'm not in really, when I'm not behaving in a way that I'm especially proud of, or that matches my own values and ideals, I can track that back to, 
Was I feeling connected to myself or to them? Was I, how regulated was I? What, what was my level of felt safety mm-hmm. in that moment? So, so it gives you kind of direction, even like when you find yourself with your lid flipped and right. doing the things we know we wouldn't say to do, but that we do. Then it's not just a shame bath. It's not just like, nobody should listen to me because I'm not even doing it myself. The model then is where you track back and you look for where that I lost connection, yeah. where I'm feeling threatened. And then moving back to safety and connection. Right. It's implicit that it gives you what to do. (laughs) Yes. And if part of why I flipped my lid was because like my kid's behavior was challenging. He's 14. This happens every now and again. (laughs) (laughs) I can ask myself the same thing about him. You know, like what's happening here? What's shaking his level of felt safety? Well, there's all sorts of things shaking everyone's felt safety right now. Oh, man. (laughs) You know, is he feeling connected to me? You know, like what is our level? of connection in this moment? How regulated is he? Which could come down to something as simple as when was the last time he ate? But that if I can see his behavior and go regulation, connection, felt safety. Well, first of all, I'm not making characterological assumptions. That helps me stay regulated myself. And then ultimately it helps me like solve what the real problem is, right? Which Mm -hmm. isn't that he's a mouthy jerk. It's that he's, you know, in that moment, has too much going on to stay in connection to his own regulation and behave in a way that I know is true about him, which is lovely, right? Mm -hmm. But I really felt passionate about people being surrounded by other people who believed this about them. Mm -hmm. So I made this like manifesto for membership, right? Like you, and I said, you don't have to believe this all the time. Because when we get dysregulated, we do start to shift. It was like our anchor and our beliefs. It's true about me too. You don't have to believe this all the time. You just have to, in general, believe that this is true about other humans. And the reason you do that is because I believe in the practice of showing up in a relationship, offering that truth, like coming into the relationship, believing that about other people. I really believe in the power of being that person who's like kind of looking around this even virtual community and saying, holy smokes, like I'm surrounded by people who believe this. Ultimately, I can't be the one outlying variable that this isn't true about. Ultimately, this must be true about me too. That's so beautiful. I can really, (sighs) really see the power of that because I love group power. So that way, when one person's off, you know, you've got a group to contain it and to re-regulate so they don't have to have it together all the time. And then when that happens over time and then they're able to help right. somebody else, right. it's like now you have a whole new regulatory system. What's the mechanics? Like it's an online virtual group. Do, do they meet together? Like how, how does that work? So it's still unfolding and we're open to making some changes. But in this moment, what it consists of is truly like like joining, signing up and saying like, yes, I believe in these things. I actually really believe that's a huge piece of it. Like making this Mm -hmm. commitment of, I believe this and Mm -hmm. I'm willing to try to believe it about you and about me. Even though that sounds like theoretical, there is like a very functional logistical piece of it. Yeah. Like there's literal like check boxes, like, yes, 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 yes. And again, it's like, I'm not trying to control your thoughts and I don't expect you should believe this all the time. It's not possible. But when it comes right down to it, Here's the North Star. Here's where we're heading right. back towards. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's not just because the North Star benefits you. It's because the North Star benefits everyone in this group. 
That's right. knowing, you know, that we all have the same North star. So then I kind of think about it, you know, I've taken these kind of three pillars and tried to make the framework even for the group. So one is there is an educational component, psychoeducational component inside the group. There's a, a Zoom like monthly masterclass oh, and nice. that's just on a, a short topic about parenting. You yeah. know, and it could be about, you know, specific behavior or, you know, it varies. So there's a, you know, psychoeducational component. And then I have monthly themes there's the chickens. Did you hear that? Ah, <laughs> yeah. if, you guys didn't, if you guys didn't hear that, uh, here's the uncensored part. Uh, yeah. Can you tell them how many chickens that you have? We have 11. We have two roosters and nine hens. And so, so is that a rooster that we're hearing? We just heard a rooster. Yep. Wonderful. Cat, they, yes. They talk, they kind of yell at each other all day long, actually, is what they do. But <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, so, okay. So then there's this monthly like overarching theme that's about caring for ourselves as parents. You know, what are things that we can be doing? You know, it's not just about showing up and learning facts. If that's all it was about, nobody would even follow me on social media. That's the easy right. part. So the facts are just one little piece. And the other is, you know, like what can we do that is really what it's doing is increasing our own regulation, our own integration, our own capacity to have reflective functioning, which is such a crucial Amen. part yes. of parenting in a way. Everything. Yeah, everything. You're right. Everything. Yeah. So in my parenting group, in my parenting work, I call it having x-ray vision goggles, right? Mm-hmm. That we can put our x-ray vision goggles on and we can notice the behavior and just notice it as a clue and mm-hmm. then get inside and go, what's underneath us driving this behavior? And then of mm-hmm. course, ultimately we turn that back to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to understand somebody else's, you know, mm-hmm. behaviors, but we still hang out and shame ourselves. Mm-hmm. So parents are so motivated to learn these things about their kids. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I can say, but you know, this is true about you too, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way we're looking at what's underneath it for your kid, like what makes you exempt from that? Totally. So like, for example, this month's theme was just on the broad topic of integration. And so we learned about the concept of integration, what it means, what mental, neural, you know, neural, you mean neural, neural integration. integration. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then uh, the, you know, a, a suggested daily practice kind of based on the wheel, wheel of awareness. Yeah. Yep. Right, so oh, nice. there's the caring for ourselves piece. Mm-hmm. And then the third piece is caring for each other, like showing mm-hmm. up and being in a community. And mm-hmm. there is a group forum mm-hmm. and it's just been gorgeous. It's just been gorgeous the way people are showing up, people are being vulnerable, people are saying things like things I'm not telling them to say, but things like, Mm -hmm. I see you, I hear you, I'm holding that for you today. And then I also think about all the people who aren't really participating, because, you know, in group forums, there's different levels. Some people participate a lot. Some people like a listserv or well, right now it's just a private Facebook group because there's not a great forum. I know. Opportunity, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So right now it's just a Facebook group, which is not okay. ideal for a couple of reasons, but in other ways it is ideal because of the way yeah. that Facebook groups function. Yeah. It's not therapy. And the forum also has real, the whole group has really clear structure and guidelines, which is another way of creating felt safety. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we don't give our kids names. We don't post pictures of them. We take a need to know basis when we post things, you know, like your child's life story doesn't need to live on the internet, but yeah. we want to support you. 
So what's the least amount of information possible you could give us to tell us about what's happening for you? And again, it's not therapy, so I, I'm not worried about HIPAA and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and you let and you let the group support one another. You're not coming in primarily being the support person. Is that right? So it's or- you know, there's a space of growing a community of you know taking that role at first. Mm-hmm. And I also have a team. I have other people, so it's not just me. But that is ultimately my hope: is yeah. that my job will be more to create the holding environment while they begin to really connect with and offer each mm-hmm. other what they need. And also, I have to keep thinking about all the people who aren't posting because. People have yep. different ways of being in groups, right? Oh, yeah. Some people, totally. people are rest, getting things from just watching this. Just yeah. reading. Yeah. You know, so then I think about writing something to someone and I imagine, oh my gosh, like 150 other people are reading. They're hearing my, mm-hmm. you know, my words. They're reading my, they're hearing my compassion, mm-hmm. you know, eventually you have to ask yourself again, like, how could I be the one outlying variable here? Mm-hmm. How could I be the one person that doesn't deserve this level of compassion? It's still a kind of experimental phase, but I've not been this excited about something in a long time. You're really onto something. I think it's because it's so non-shaming and yeah, there is it's not a blank check. It's not just like everything is wonderful. Uh, oh no, know? no, no, no. Right? You've got to do your education. You've got to learn. Yeah. And then this whole quest around regulation and safety, it's like, yeah. that's what it is. So can you say the three pillars again? Just Yes. Speak? Pillar number one is that we are learning about like the neurobiology of being human. We're learning about the brains and we're learning about how trauma impacts that. And then the resulting behaviors that we see. Yeah. Yeah. Second one is that we're showing up in a place where we know everybody believes that there's nothing wrong with me. Like me as the adult, I'm here for my kids, right? But if I need to want to cultivate enough regulation in my own neurobiology that I can parent in the way that I want to, a way to receive that is to be constantly, be co-regulated, right? right. To be co-regulated. I mean, even that there's nothing wrong with me. I mean, that's just powerful. Like, who? you know, that's just, that's therapy by itself. Right. that, That practice. Right. Yeah. And then the third one is that I'm committed to offering that to each other. Yeah. You know, to every, and again, that isn't like this Pollyanna. We all just show up and like blow, you know, rainbows. Come, come and, yeah, no, no, no. You know, because another part of the manifesto actually that I had forgotten to mention is that we're committed to, you know, fiercely enforcing compassionate boundaries because that's a huge part of parenting. When I watch parents shift to this new kind of model of parenting, which is more focused on regulation, connection, and felt safety, as opposed to consequences and punishment, Mm -hmm. because as a culture, we've so conflated boundaries with consequences and punishment Mm -hmm. that when we try to shift away, primarily using consequences and punishment, we are confused about how to set a boundary and that we can set boundaries with other people's behavior Mm -hmm. without losing our connection to Connection is a biological imperative and we can do both. I can say this behavior is not acceptable. So can I throw you an example? Like again, I'm trying to think of a skeptic out there. It's like, oh, that sounds great, but yes. So it's COVID in your family. You have rules about um, boundaries around COVID and uh, interactions with other people. And so, mm, you know, whatever middle school child secretly 
does what they want related to boundaries. It just doesn't. Yeah. It sneaks out and or goes mask. inside. Yeah. Doesn't you know? Yep. You know, for good reason. You know, social pressures yeah, or whatever. Yeah, totally. But something pretty major as far as uh, yes. and then not telling the family. Okay. Right. Okay. Go. Okay. okay go. So, <laughs> well, one thing you just said that is actually really important and all is hard for people, especially when they're so worried about safety, right? Like, as we're dysregulated, we forget these truths, which is middle school kids are peer oriented. Mm-hmm. Middle school kids aren't thinking about long-term consequences, you know, like all these things that have to do with their brain. So that really actually is step number one, like remembering it in context mm-hmm. because it takes it us out of character assassination. Like they're just bad. They're just selfish, right? They just do whatever they want and don't right. care about the rest of us. So just shifting that lens. Mm-hmm. Obviously that doesn't change the behavior, but if we want to be with our kids in a way that ultimately the behavior can change, I do believe that's a really important paradigm shift, right? So there's number one is really understanding like, why, why is this happening? And then the second one is we can still set a boundary just because we understand why it's happening. We don't have to say like, oh, it's so important to my middle schooler that they have these social interactions. So I guess there's just nothing I can do about it. No, the boundary is I understand why you want this and why it's so important to you that you are prioritizing what you want over maintaining the connection in our relationship. Because when you do something that's against the rules, you hurt the connection in our relationship. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let me get curious about why that's true, why that's such a priority. And then maybe what I need to do is think about how do I put the environmental pieces in place that allow my child to be successful? How do I create an environment that doesn't allow my child to be not successful? I mean, if we got really extreme here, that could look like you know, your child doesn't go anywhere without your direct supervision. Mm -hmm. And there are alarms on doors and windows. Now I'm not advocating that as like the first line of defense here, Mm -hmm. but if we wanted to go all the way to the extreme, if your child's not capable of, you know, making choices that are safe for the whole family, then they need more connection. They need more co-regulation. They need more Well, it's a demonstration of, you know, the boundaries can be real boundaries. This isn't just soft, sweet stuff. Yeah, but if we're going to put door alarms on or window yeah. alarms on, which I know families that have to do this, even pre-COVID, to yeah. create some safety, when we do it from the lens of, I understand why you're doing this. It's my job as a parent to create an environment that allows for your safety and allows you to be successful. The energy you know, with the door alarms is completely different than you're a bad kid who will never follow the rules. And this is what I have to do. So it's the same behavior. Like we still have alarms, but the energy of it's completely different. And our kids are seeing a different version of themselves reflected back to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see it's so about tone, right? Like locking down your windows, you know, from a one perspective versus I can see that you're having trouble controlling that impulse. And and I can see why that would be the case. So let's help you with that. And then this also is face saving for your friends. It's like, you can't, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, you're helping them do something that a part of them really wants to do. And that feels really different. Very different. And their experience of what you think about them is very different. And I actually think that that's wildly important, Mm -hmm. right? That my kid sees me as looking at him. So he sees in my eyes that I know he's an amazing child that for whatever reason is struggling to meet this expectation. Mm -hmm. And so my job is to help. 
as opposed to me looking at him with eyes of like, you're just a bad kid. You can't follow the rules and I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to take his experiences of himself is totally different. Totally. You know, we just recently interviewed Elizabeth Sylvester. Do you know her here in Mm -hmm. Austin? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And her nurtured heart Mm -hmm. work. And this reminds me a lot of that about just that. So they kind of go together. So if you're listening just to keep supporting this idea and this, it's really a reworking, a rewiring of how that we are interpreting and understanding, which is all towards security. This is about growing security, facilitating security. That's really wonderful. Do you want to give one more example just to get this in? And maybe you generated this time from your experience of something that is particularly difficult. Like it's not the soft stuff and how this applies in that case. Right. So really common behavior, quote unquote problem that I'll hear a lot is lying. And the lying can be about small things that are pretty inconsequential and don't really matter. Or they can be about just like what you said, like there's a element of lying and like sneaking out, not wearing your mask, mm-hmm. things like that. So for me, again, the very first step, the very first step is parents caring for themselves enough that they can hold on to their thinking brain. Because if we can't <laughs> hold on to our own thinking brains... Oh, lying. <laughs> and especially with lying, like I rarely run across a behavior that's just triggering to parents and lying and food issues are pretty much the things that will send really? parents. Ju- yes. Cause there's such an element of nurturing care and food issues. And when your kids are rejecting that, it is mm-hmm. so hard to separate it from them not rejecting you. So lying and food issues are like the two things that I've watched parents just like cannot hold on to their own. Mm-hmm. You know, it just feels so personal. So we have to work on that first. How can we stay more regulated? And I do think an element of that is understanding the why. Where is the lie coming from? Lying's about like, if I tell the truth, things aren't going to work out for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's not safe to tell the truth. Either I'm going to get in trouble or I'm not going to get what I want. Or I'm going to disappoint you. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's going to hurt the relationship. So lying is about like, it's, it's not safe to tell the truth. So first I just stay anchored in that. Like that keeps me curious. Like, huh, wonder why my kid has to lie about this. You know? Okay. So here's an example of my own real life. My husband's a fantastic cook. Fantastic. And takes a lot of pride. So here we can combine lying and food issues. Actually, I hadn't done that on purpose. <laughs> and my son's a really sensory picky eater. He has been since the moment he started on solids, basically really sensory picky kid. And, you know, there's a a place I'm sure of hurt for my husband when there's this gorgeous meal prepared and the kid won't eat it. Or it's met with like, (laughs) just like legitimate expression of disgust. Mm -hmm. As hard as we try to be, you know, the parents that we're, you know, wanting to be, you know, we're not perfect under any stretch of the imagination. And ultimately our son has learned that him expressing how he feels about food causes pain. And so we noticed one day that he was starting to lie about it. He would say like, I'm just not hungry or I just ate, or I really like this, but, and it was really (laughs) obvious he was lying. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. what he wanted to say was, "Mm, I just don't like this. And so we had to pause as parents and go, how have we unintentionally contributed 
to him not feeling safe mm-hmm. to just say the straight up truth. He doesn't mm-hmm. like it. So we had to get real honest with ourselves about that, you know, have conversation, own that with him. Like we realize this is what's happened. You know, you are welcome to tell us you don't like something. It is possible to express that you don't like something in a respectful way. That like, ew, when somebody has just spent an hour cooking you a meal, it's just mm-hmm. never respect. It's just not okay ever. Mm-hmm. Even if that's what you're feeling, right? <laughs> but like, oh, dad, I really just don't like this. Then our job, son, is to be regulated enough to say, thank you for being honest about it. Thank you for being not disrespectful about it. Thank you for not making up a lie about it. And thank you for knowing yourself. Like you're allowed to have likes and dislikes to preferences that are not the same as mine. Yep. And so we had to be regulated ourselves. We had to understand what was driving it. I don't feel safe to tell the truth. There's no other reason for my son to make up a story about why he's not eating something. Right. If it wasn't safe to tell the truth, then we had to address that problem, create mm-hmm. enough safety. And then we had to give him some new behavioral alternatives, like teach mm-hmm. him what to do instead. And then we had to follow through with our end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if he says, I don't like this, we have to try not to celebrate <laughs> again. Really? You know, like the, we had to be like, thank you. Yes. Thank you. And, and we can be honest, like it is hard to hear that yeah. somebody doesn't like something. But yeah. That doesn't mean you don't still get to have your own feelings of not liking it. Like both mm-hmm. get to be true in this moment. Mm-hmm. Well, part of what I hear in that is just how co-regulatory it is. The layers of complexity to grow into where that, like, if we think of it as a triangle of you and your husband and your son, that each of you are contributing. So your son is helping. He's telling you about it. He's telling you why. He's answering your question of why he's lying or he's owning something. You know, there's a little piece there. There's a little piece on your end. There's a little piece on your husband's end. And then the three of you together work it to make it a we kind of again, or, a, yes. you know, move it back into relationship and everybody moved a little. So that's yeah. just another thing is like, I think sometimes it's easy to sit back and like, you know, well, I did understand and he's still doing it, which is how you started, which is, it's really about the behavior and coercion. Even if we, you know, our agenda versus this, okay. You know, looking at yourself, looking at them, working it out. That's wonderful. It's really great. Ultimately remembering that our kids are their own people. And so I could do everything quote unquote, right. Although I couldn't, cause that's not possible. And I don't even know what that would mean. Yeah. <laughs> and my kid is still his own human, yeah. but I'm doing everything right. And it's just not working again. I think we can say, well, what does working mean? Yeah. But then also, also go, well, they're their own people. Like I can do this. Mm-hmm. I can offer I can create the environment. I can do my part. I can do everything. And then they're still their own. They're, they're their own person and, and come to get to know them. Who, who is this person in front of you? Yeah. How are they different than you? How are they yeah. similar to you? That's wonderful. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Yeah. So this is great stuff. I know people are really fired up about it. So how would they reach you? So I'm easy to find robingobel.com. And then there's all sorts of goodness there, you know, blogging super regularly. I've got a couple of free like video resources. In fact, I have a video called regulation connection and felt safety that people can watch on my website. And then I've recently started podcasting. It's called parenting after trauma with Robin Gobel. And to the best of my knowledge, you can find it everywhere. It's everywhere. Low tech. I do zilch editing. That's for now. We'll see what happens in the future. But yeah, so that's a new place people can find me. 
Oh, that's wonderful. You're doing so much. I so want to support you and your, these new ideas and leveraging people to support one another, which is really the key of what you're doing, I think right now, you know, in other words, you're looking at maintenance. How do you maintain this? Sure. We all want to do this one thing, but how do you maintain it? So look for our show notes in this episode and we will put some of those resources and link you to Robin directly. And is there any kind of final thoughts that like somebody out there that's really still tuning in, they're still listening. What's your last message? The thing that I really want folks to truly believe in the power about like themselves and about people, about relationships is this idea that if we change how we see people, we're changing people Mm. that the way we approach people and the way we're in relationship with the women and the way that we're interpreting in in their behavior, that impacts our own neurobiology. Mm. And then our neurobiology impacts them. And so just the shift in changing how we see people. I mean, when people are like, just tell me what to do, give me an intervention. I'm like, but that actually is an intervention. Truly, it's maybe not immediate. (laughs) It can be pretty immediate. You know what I mean? It's a lens. Makes me think of the tail wagging, you know, that like, if you begin to see, you know, the approach is a friendly approach, which is really the underpinning of secure attachment is one of the things that secure kids and secure adults have is this implicit trust and this expectation that they're going to be taken care of. Yes. It doesn't come naturally when we haven't had that kind of early experience. So it's in a way, it's like your direction is perfect because it goes back to let's move back towards what we call the green and shift how you're seeing other people, shift how you're seeing yourself even, right? Like yes, yeah. make this one tiny little thing and then you'll get more tail wags, yeah. which will then help you tail wag. And then we're now- Absolutely. Yep. Perfect. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. And if you guys are interested in more, we're not doing ads right now. And that is because of our patron group. And if you'd like to join, please go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. There's all kinds of behind the scenes stuff, extra content. And depending on the level, you get a few goodies in the mail. (laughs) And one other thing about the Patreons is that we call them our neuro nerd community is that I'm going to be teaching a study group on the three pillars, which is David Elliott and Dan Brown's book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults, Comprehensive Treatment and Repair. And I've taught this before, but out of demand, I'm going to do it again. And so any patron, and you can be a patron for as low as $5 a month, any patron of ours gets access to that study group for free. So thank you very much for coming back on. And by the way, I uh, love seeing some of your pink moves. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so impressed. Uh, Aerial silks has changed my life. I write about uh, it in my book. So some of the pictures that I see of Robin, sometimes she's upside down, you know, (laughs) hanging with one leg, looks beautiful, very graceful. So that's been really fun. Okay. And with that, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we will see you around a bit. Wow. I just really, really loved listening to that episode again. I am so grateful to Sue and her co-host, Anne, who unfortunately couldn't join us for this interview and all the amazing work that they're doing. And of course, I'm really, really grateful to you. Thank you for your commitment to kids and families and for making the world a better place by embodying the science of relationships. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. I'll see you then. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, 
yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash beingwith, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, eBooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.